This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Miss the show? No worries. On point and on the podcast. Coming up, Trudeau isn't even trying to hide his disdain for Alberta. Announcing subsidies to Alberta oil and gas will be cut off next year. And if he's really trying to push Alberta to separate, this may just be the last straw. So how will Alberta be affected by being cut off? Or will it? Free speech doesn't mean there is no consequence for what you say, but the punishment should fit the crime. And in the case of a university professor who was kicked off Twitter for suggesting that the prime minister be tarred and feather, well, the only crime committed is by Twitter enforcing thought crime where none exists. We talked to the professor. And the new defense minister does in days what her boss, Harjit Sajjan, nor Justin Trudeau, couldn't figure out in six years, and that is stopping the military from policing itself. So now justice for the military offenders will be immediately handed over to outside authorities to look into. This is what took six years to figure out. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Twitter is being far too literal and treating this as incitement to violence, which is ridiculous. But the thing that I find bizarre is they have done this when I'm advocating for vaccination, for saving lives, for instead of hurting people, helping children avoid a pandemic. First, they silence the professor and next Twitter comes for you. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, November 4th. Here we are. Happy mini budget day. Said no one ever. Yes, indeedy, we will uh, get into those numbers laid out by the province this afternoon, and um, they're pretty scary. They are pretty scary um, for a government that was brought in on austerity. That notion is out the door, but we will break it down on what we are looking at. But I want to talk about what we can and can't talk about. And if you ask me, we are no longer on the slippery slope to censorship. We have arrived. And I'm referring to the ban Twitter put on University of Ottawa professor Amir Adaran. And Adaran has been silenced on the platform because he suggested that Justin Trudeau should be tarred and feathered because he didn't get children's vaccines secured in a timely matter. So the tweet precisely said, quote, Trudeau should be tarred and feathered for putting child lives in danger. And then he tagged conservative leader Aaron O'Toole and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. And then Twitter notified him that his account was suspended because he'd violated their terms, but it might be restored if he just removes the tweet. And so Adaran said he'd sleep on it. And then when he got up Thursday morning, the account was restored, but Adaran is not allowed to tweet unless he removes the offending tweet. And I suspect Twitter reversed their decision because there was a lot of blowback from many in the media and not not from those who even like this professor or agree with him, but from those who understand the growing threat of silencing voices. I mean, who is stupid enough to believe that Adaran actually wanted the prime minister tarred and feathered? I mean, if that's all that it takes to get banned, 
then why was Randy Hillier not taken off the platform? Because he, too, called for politicians to be tarred and feather. He tweeted back on Monday, October 4th, when the Ontario legislature opens, people should bring a pot of boiling hot tar and a case of feathers. Every politician who arrives deserves both a tar and feathering, end quote. So his tweet actually goes further than Adirond's because he actually told some people in the public, bring a pot of boiling tar and a case of feathers. So should he have been banned too? No, because who in the right mind actually thinks he was being serious? But when you compare the two, I mean, unlike Adirond, who's very pro-vaccine and speaks out on COVID misinformation, Hillier actually does the opposite. And yet one stays on the platform, one is kicked off. I mean, my point is neither should be silenced, period. And that's because I actually believe in free speech, even speech that offends me, even speech that I think is gross. I like my hate right out in the open. And um, in this case, neither of these people actually did anything wrong. And ironically, Hillier uh, today is speaking out in support of the professor. But where does it stop? I mean, people use silly phrases like this all the time. Like if I say bite me, do you really think that I, I expect people to bite me? I mean, really? Uh, when I was little and when I drove my mother crazy, which was pretty much every second of the day, she would tell me to either, she was, she'd choose, she would go play in traffic was one or take a long walk off a short pier. And did I do either? No, because I'm not an idiot. And I've had Professor Adoran on this show to talk about things like vaccines. And I literally disagree with almost everything this professor tweets or thinks. I mean, he can be a very, very prickly guy. So politically, we agree on nothing. But he's been right on a lot of issues when it comes to vaccines that he speaks of. And so I keep an open mind and I have him on to talk about those issues. And he, like you, like me, should have every right to say what he wants without the fear of being silenced by Twitter. It's one thing if his university has a problem with it and wants to get rid of him. Okay, that's a consequence. But bottom line is, he shouldn't have to fear being silenced because he was critical of the government of the day. I remember a while ago now, uh, I once tweeted that a particular party should be taken out behind a barn and given the old yeller treatment. Now, was I serious? No. Did I get suspended? No. Sure I have been? No. I was just saying. You know, it, it, it's just saying it. I mean, we are no longer on this slippery slope to censorship. I, the cancer is here, but we've just renamed it cancel culture. And as Adderan states, it's pretty dangerous and corrosive to society. I mean, in some of the worst countries on earth, the social media channels are heavily policed. Yeah. China, yeah. Russia. How can Canada undertake that mistake and not at times stifle what is legitimate dissent? Mm -hmm. And keep in mind, while Twitter is policing itself today, the Liberals plan to reintroduce this draconian, very dangerous anti-free speech legislation that will create its own bureaucracy to police and remove what any of us say on social media. And of course, it's sold under the guise of protecting us from disinformation and hate, but it is nothing but straight up government censorship. And it's the kind of crap we would expect in a country like China.
And it all starts with a silly comment, but eventually anyone who shows dissent could be silenced. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't consequences to free speech and what you say. But the punishment should fit the crime. And in this case, the only crime committed, if you ask me, is by Twitter, which is enforcing thought crime where none exists. Boy, oh boy, Mr. Orwell sure was right when he wrote that book in 1984. <laughs> Except for the fiction is no longer fiction. It's actually become fact. All right, it is great to have you here on this Thursday. And if Justin Trudeau hasn't made his disdain for Alberta clear before, then I think COP26 has crystallized it very clearly. And uh, he made pretty clear in his remarks day one that he was capping emissions, which is another way of selling Alberta that he will not allow for energy development. But on Wednesday, and it didn't get a lot of attention, the Trudeau government quietly declared it will cut all subsidies to oil and gas development uh, and expansion beyond Canada. And the subsidies will now go to a fund for green technology. And while the climate crowd will celebrate this decision, what they are actually celebrating is the demise of jobs that are crucial to this country. But the Trudeau government drops this little bombshell and doesn't even then bother to explain or reassure workers in the oil and gas sector, which also is here in Ontario, how they're going to transition. Will there be supports? Or maybe those aren't part of the plans. Stuart Muir, founder of Resource Works, is also an environmental historian and co-founder of mining tech startup, Tursa Earth. He joins us now. Good to have you, Stuart. Thanks, Alex. Good morning. Good afternoon. So, yeah, there you go. Um, just just um, so Canadians or so our listeners understand, uh, the government subsidizes our oil patch to the tune of about $2 billion a year. And this is to not just lower production costs, but to bring in things like new investment, things like research and development uh, of things like clean energy. The mm -hmm. argument is always that taking this money will keep fossil fuels alive. What will it actually mean? Like, what's the reaction been since this announcement came out? Yeah, I mean, this is in that big basket of divestment, and it's all based on a canard, which is that there's some sort of advantage that uh, oil and gas or fossil fuels have been given by governments that is uh, some sort of uh, you know handout that lets oil and gas get away with something. In, in fact, once you get into the details of uh, tax policies and stuff like that, it, it's all pretty you know pedestrian stuff. There, there's nothing about it that we should be alarmed about. I mean, it's just normal business. But suppose that there there was a need to get away from it. I mean, I don't think uh, this is really going to affect the oil and gas because, and this is the number one thing, is that every consumer, every resident of Canada is totally reliant on oil and gas in almost everything they do every day. I mean, we're truly the hydrocarbon civilization. So I think a, a mature discussion about this doesn't start with, you know, here's how we're going to, you know, punish oil and gas, because that's punishing ourselves. And that's really what concerns me most here. So it, it will removing the subsidies hurt the oil patch? Um, I, I think the, the early assessment that I've made looking into the situation, I'm not that alarmed. I don't think it means that Canadian innovation suddenly won't be available to developing countries that desperately need cleaner ways to develop the, the necessary fuels in their lives. Uh, I, I think that the companies from Canada that go out there into the world and do that necessary good work will, you know, will be doing so anyways. Um, but I think it will probably be a negative because it will just sort of add to this impression that maybe some members of the public have 
um, until they've heard from you and I uh, about the reality of the situation that that somehow there's um, you know something something negative about having the highest performing country in the world in emissions reduction, and that's Canada uh, out there sharing technology and 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 practices with the world. I mean, that's a good thing in every sense. Yeah, I mean, if I just went off the narrative of COP26, I'd be um, packing up my house and uh, mm. going to move into some kind of barrack. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I'd be sheltering because apparently the, the end is nigh. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is it's not. And we are not going to be transitioning from fossil fuels. I don't even think in my lifetime. Mm. So let's say another 40-ish years. We're still going to be relying on what we have an abundance of. Mm -hmm. for decades. And so a lot of these talking points are just that, but they do very much, Stuart, uh, become um, a baked in narrative, as we've seen. And I don't think it's a secret to anybody, certainly in Alberta, uh, when you put a guy like Stephen Bolden as environment minister, and then you've got, um, you know, Mr. Wilkinson on the resource side, this is not a government that wants to utilize what we have an abundance of and what the world needs right now. Yeah, there's there's a lack of empathy. I mean, this ultimately is about people. It's about the average Canadian being able to afford life. Even even Joe Biden, who got into office uh, with the 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 fossil fuel rhetoric uh, at his back, um, I think is well more, very definitely talking in Europe right now as he travels about his concern, the price of of oil, the availability of oil. It's clear that the White House now regrets having killed off Keystone XL as one of their mm -hmm. you know, early office things. Uh, they, they realize that having a neighbor like Canada that's got a huge source of, of reliable crude oil, that's um, even though it may not be, you know, say the, the lowest uh, emissions in the world, it's, it's uh, the, the most improving um, source of oil in the world because we're working so hard. And our industry here, you set a goal for the industry in Canada, methane. Yeah. They say, okay, level playing field, we'll address that. Some people grumble, yeah, but now they're fine with it. Carbon pricing, there was some grumbling about that. You know what? They sucked it up. They, they can handle it. Most countries do not have carbon pricing. We do. We were one of only 17 countries that came out of the Paris Agreement in 2015 and actually went and did something. What's the benefit of that? What's the reward? Just getting beat up more. Um, even the clean fuel standard that affects refineries and ultimately, you know, people driving around, the industry kind of said, oh, that's, that's going to be tough. You know what? They sucked that one up too. Like everything you throw at this resilient industry that drives the Canadian economy because it supplies our most valuable export is you know, by the, the good people in Calgary, they figure it out. They're practical. They're, they're innovators. They're engineers. They, they love problem solving. Yet all we do in these high offices is, is dump on them. I mean, it, it really makes me sad. Yeah. And I know, I mean, you've got Britain, which is firing up coal plants because they're running out of energy. You've got, um, you know, the world is desperate for supply um, of fuel. I mean, the bottom line is that it could be a very long and very cold winter. Um, do you get the sense right now that this could be a turning point that maybe people will start to come around and realize that, okay, we do have um, uh, something that we produce here. We're ethical about it. We clean up after ourselves. Let's start, um, mm -hmm. you know, taking advantage of it. Do you get the sense there will be a turning point or yeah, where do you see the narrative going? I don't think we're there yet, but I think in six months to a year, I mean, there's a very real danger 
that these measures, we've already seen it in sort of miniature in the UK, where their policies, which were ahead of the, the reality of the energy transformation, I mean, I'm all, I'm all for it. And I, I, I know we've spoken about it. We, we mm -hmm. all want this to happen, but we also mm -hmm. have to respect where the technology is. And we're just not there yet. If you do what they did in the United Kingdom and you get ahead of that, look what happens. All of a sudden you've got yeah. fertilizer plants shutting down and you're not farming. <laughs> you're, you're going back to, to coal from gas or from, from wind because the wind's not blowing and other, other complications. Like, do we need to learn that lesson again? I think Ontario learned it pretty good. Uh, oh, yeah. Too bad UK didn't learn from Ontario, but uh, do we have to learn it again? Uh, I should hope not, because um, if we do this on a global basis out of what's happening in, in Glasgow and don't recognize that we actually benefit from all, all of these uh, activities, we, we could crater the global economy. And that's when the wake up call will be, which will be uh, you know, a terrible situation. I, I hope it doesn't happen, but I think there's a realistic pathway to what's already just happened in UK, in the UK, mm -hmm. happening on a global scale. Well, you know, I really wish Ontarians had learned uh, the first time around with this uh, government, same people running the show of what happens when you move too quickly on, mm -hmm. um, on an industry that's unproved, but we are still subsidizing our way through energy costs in this province. So, um, and they keep voting in the, the same kind of policies. Nonetheless, I, I'm sure it cannot be lost on anybody in Alberta that on Tuesday, uh, our American friends uh, in Maine uh, voted against um, Quebec's hopes for a hydro line, um, you know, to Maine, which they were, I think, banking on, um, which is a bit of, a, you don't want to, you don't want to wish ill on, on a province, but you know, it's a bit of Schadenfreude. Well, well, it is, you know, I was recently, I just had a, at a conference, I ran into a few uh, uh, policy wonks from Quebec who we were sitting around in a small circle and, and someone said, hey, let's go around the circle and tell us what you think is the most controversial policy idea you could think of. And it got to be my turn. Everyone had something not very outrageous. I said, okay, here's my controversial policy idea. Let's uh, Quebec, which is always on its high horse about emissions and, and oil and gas. And, you know, lots of people in Alberta seem to love to, to hate Alberta and, and talking about how superior Quebec is. Well, how about to put your money where your mouth is, you just stop receiving any equalization payments that come in any way from oil and gas, and then we'll believe your rhetoric. And yeah. It was just blank stares. People couldn't even understand what I was saying, not because I was not speaking French, but because um, they, they <laughs> just couldn't process this idea. It was too challenging. Like, why should they give up their hypocrisy? They have lovely warm homes. We can go to Florida by the millions and fly there and drive there. Who, who's this guy who, who wants us to you know, not take that money from a, a, a place in the country that we despise? It's like, yeah. you know, that's the, that's the extent of the gulf that we have, that we suffer today, not just between provinces, but, but I think there is, there is, you know, political opportunism to say, you know what, it's really easy for me to just sort of throw stones at that house over there, that industry, and cash in the political points. Um, I think there's a better way to do it. And if yeah. we don't do it better, well, there are consequences of that that aren't ours to control. Uh, Joe Biden's already obviously fearful of that. You know, he's, he's out there asking OPEC to increase drilling. OPEC said, nope. Yeah, it's it's crazy that uh, that he can't just turn to Canada and say, "Let's uh, reverse the Keystone decision and get going on yep. this," because it would yep. just answer so many, solve so many questions and answers. Exactly. Uh, Stuart, very much appreciate your time, and uh, we'll talk again. Great, thanks so much. Stuart Muir uh, joins us here. He's a founder of ResourceWorks as well as a co-founder of the mining tech startup Tursa Earth. Great to have you here on this Thursday. So can we just admit that freedom of speech is no longer actually free in this country? Because over time, we have accepted censorship under the guise of cancel culture. 
And I say this because an Ottawa professor has been silenced by Twitter after tweeting that, quote, Trudeau should be tarred and feather, feathered for putting child's lives in danger. Now, the comment was in response to public health putting out information that it would be months before a decision was made on pediatric COVID shots. Twitter then notifies Amir Aharan that he's violated their terms by inciting violence towards the prime minister, which is utterly ridiculous. And he was told he was permanently banned. Then the account was reactivated, but the professor still can't tweet unless he removes the offending comment. And I will point out that this phrase was just used a couple of weeks ago by Randy Hillier, who tweeted out that people should show up at Queen's Park and bring boiling tar and feathers for the MPPs. And if you follow Professor Adaran, then you know he's got plenty to say. And whether we or I agree with him or not, and often I disagree with his comments, I'll still fight for his right to say them, especially when it seems pretty clear that Twitter is being very selective with who they silence. Let me bring in Mr. Professor Amir Aran, Professor of Law Medicine at the University of Ottawa and a trained immunologist. Good to have you. Hi, Alex. How are you? you well, you know, I'm troubled by this. I mean, politically, you and I could not be more opposite. So I, I, I often disagree with your views, and I should be more offended the fact that you don't even follow me on Twitter. But my position on this is that I've still been able to find common ground with you on issues like vaccines, which you've been very pro about, but you've also been very critical of the Trudeau government. So we, we talk about that on the show. But I think to suggest anyone should be taken off Twitter or silence because of, of, of a using a phrasing like that, to me, is very dangerous. I agree with you. I mean, our political language is full of metaphors. Like if we were to say, let's go out and beat the mayor at the next election, that, that doesn't mean let's go after the mayor with a baseball bat, does it? Right. You know, or if we say that uh, someone should hold the premier's feet to the fire, that doesn't yeah. really mean we want to burn him. And likewise, if you say the prime minister should be tarred and feathered for having made a mistake that's going to cost children's lives with vaccination, that doesn't mean that Jugmeet Singh and Aaron O'Toole should pin him down and come at him with tar and feathers. Twitter is being far too literal and treating this as incitement to violence, which is ridiculous. But the thing that I find bizarre is they have done this when I'm advocating for vaccination, for saving lives, for instead of hurting people, helping children avoid a pandemic. Someone like Randy Hillier who's been arrested for violating public health orders, who has compared, and it's disgusting, public health to Nazis, he was allowed to use the phrase tar and feather, and he was not banned for life, as I was until I pushed back. Right. And there was a lot of pushback um, by a lot of people in, in journalism who may not agree with you or may have comments or feelings about you, but see the bigger picture in this, which is an attack on free speech. And yes, people will say there can be a cost to free speech. And yes, there can be if you actually spread hate or incite actual violence. But no one with a brain would ever use or take a phrase like that seriously. My issue, uh, and I've got several, is that Twitter's doing this now and being very selective with who they silence. So if they're silencing you, a professor, today, it could be me tomorrow and probably will. But we also have a government right now that's trying to push through more legislation to police 
content on social media platforms. And so what we are not creating, we're not even talking a slippery slope. We are going to have government and social media companies basically shutting down any kind of uh, conversation that they find mean. I worry about that. I mean, in some of the worst countries on earth, the social media channels are heavily policed. China, Russia. How can Canada undertake that mistake and not at times stifle what is legitimate dissent? We live in a country where even when people are trying to do very good things, government attacks them. I'm thinking, for instance, of Cindy Blackstock, who's been a wonderful Mm -hmm. advocate for children, Indigenous children. At one point, the government had spies on her, watching her every word on Facebook. They did the same to Sean Bruya, who's an advocate for veterans' rights. Now, what they did to Mr. Bruya and what they did to Ms. Blackstock, these are heroes, Canadian heroes, I think, was spy on their social media. And if they had the power to change it, they would have. No doubt they would have. Yeah, and I'm no conspiracy theorist, but it does not even, I don't think twice that there's probably, there's many people that worked in the prime minister's office that work now at Facebook and or Twitter and these social media um, companies. I, I, I don't even think twice that the, that the PMO's office might call and say, hey, can you just get rid of this nuisance for me? Because they don't want to be attacked on social media. Um, you know, on vaccine policy or not. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that calls go back and forth. But the, the, the issue you now face is your account looks like it's back up, but you still can't use it. And you also can't resolve it because Twitter can shut you down. But then when you need to actually speak with someone to fight your case or try to appeal it, there's no one available. That's right. And, and Twitter just hides from the consequences of its choices. Um, some time ago, somebody posted on Twitter that I'm a pedophile. Well, that's a little <laughs> bit defamatory, don't you think? Well, that's you know, a that... lot more defamatory and dangerous than, than, than using a term like tar and feather because calling someone a predator or a pedophile actually can destroy someone's reputation. Right. And so I reported that to Twitter saying, well, this is obviously not on. Would you remove the tweet? Twitter refused. I had to send them a formal notice of libel I had to go legal on them. Mm -hmm. And then they did the right thing. This is the way Twitter works. They'll let people get away with anything. They'll let Randy Hillier get away with comparing public health to Nazis and then urging the politicians who support public health be physically tarred and feathered. He meant it. He said, come with pots of boiling oil to the legislature, right? That they tolerate. More yeah. reasonable voices, they don't. And if, if you set up a system where, you know, Nazism, fine, accuse, accusations of pedophilia, fine, but legitimate discussion about the government's performance on vaccination and whether they've done enough to help children and save their lives is not fine. Boy, you have jumped the shark. And I'm afraid Twitter is just a cesspit right now. Um, yeah, and it's improperly sure. managed. This is this is proof of how poorly managed it has become. Does the university take issue with things that you say? No, no, not at all. I mean, I've I've never had the university tell me that I cannot say such and such. 
and and that's a good thing. Um, people outside the university very often do complain, and the university effectively tells them too bad, which is the right thing for a university to do. Well, it's a it's also rare in today's culture at universities, so that's refreshing to hear. So then the next uh, then, then the next questions become like, what will you do? Will you take the tweet down? Do you just bend? Uh, to the will of Twitter, where do you take this fight? I'm thinking about it. And I've written earlier today to Twitter's government relations person, Michelle Austin, I've written to their lawyers. And I'm going to wait to see what they say. What I think is clear is that there are a lot of people who don't have the, the connections that I do or the willingness or ease to go legal as I can. People who are more vulnerable, people's the people whose lives could be destroyed if somebody decided to call them a pedophile. Mm -hmm. I don't see justice for those people. And that's why I'm not just taking my opportunity to get back on Twitter and running with it. I think Twitter and I are going to have a little talk first, and then we'll see what happens. Nonetheless, we will stay tuned. And uh, again, whether I agree with you or not is not the issue. It's the fact that you live in a country that's supposed to be a democracy and one of free speech. And so therefore I will stand on the side of free speech always. Professor, very much appreciate you joining us and we'll see where this fight goes. Thank you, Alex. And thanks for being an advocate for free speech. That is Professor Amir Adharan. So we'll see what Twitter does. Will Twitter link? I think they will and they should. Brand new defense minister managing to do in days what her boss, Mr. Trudeau, nor her colleague, Harjit Sajjan, could figure out in six years. And that is, as you heard in the news, that effective immediately, the military will no longer investigate and prosecute itself. I mean, what a novel concept. So Anita Anand announces today that she was taking an early recommendation from a Supreme Court judge, Luis Arbor. And this retired judge says it's the best way to fix what is clearly very broken, and that is by taking it out of the hands who have shown very clearly that they can't objectively deal with these matters, and so they'll be put into civilian authorities uh, to handle cases like public courts, our court system, and our police uh, forces. I want to bring Colonel Michel Drapeau into this conversation. He is with Michel Drapeau Law, who uh, is established the first private law firm dealing with military law. He joins us now. Good to have you, Colonel. Thank you. So Louise Arbor, the retired justice, is in the process of doing this year-long reveal that was announced by uh, Mr. Singh and Mr. Trudeau a couple of months ago. So we don't really actually need this. And she's released this recommendation early because she felt it could not wait. But there were two other retired judges that made basically the same recommendation. One was during the Harper years and another was earlier this year. Uh, but the Trudeau government insisted that the matter needed more review. Well, if we go back to Marie Deschamps' report in 2015, um, she made the following comments, which are uh, instructive. She says a majority of the victims of sexual assault in the military do not report the crime because they don't have confidence into the independence of the military justice system. They also said one of the reasons is they fear when they report it that reprisal action could be taken against them and put their career at risk. They also said that when they do this, their, 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 the confidential information related to that is not protected. And as a result, they become 
Um, you know, there was a finger-pointing exercise. People are blaming them for having brought those allegations forward. And we know from Statistic Canada uh, um, uh, survey, they were about a 1,000 sexual assault a year. When we look at the records produced by either the Jodhavaka General or the military police, there is nowhere near this kind of numbers of sexual assault have been reported. So there's a shortfall in a number of sexual assault. Now, in addition to that, obviously, um, Justice Fish, who did a wall-to-wall review of the military justice, came to realize that that victims that are prosecuted before military tribunals are deprived of all the rights that any other person in Canada has as victims of crimes because they've been excluded from that legislation. And when Parliament passed additional legislation to give them the rights to have right to information and right to various other rights, D&D has failed to implement it despite the fact it's been passed into law in June 2019. When you had those two items together, Fish recommended that, in fact, until victims of crimes in the military be provided the same protection that these sexual assault crimes be transferred to the civilian court. And he made this recommendation, but nothing happened. And this is what Madame Arbour wrote to the former defense minister in October, uh, basically making the recommendation, this be done and this be done now. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Anand, as soon as taken office, less than two weeks to take an office, she made the decision, a very necessary decision, one that will um, will turn the thing upside down, will begin the process of cleaning up and making it more equitable and giving more trust in the system that victims don't have at the moment. So those sexual assault victims in the military from here on in, when they are victimized, they will have the opportunity to pick up the phone and call 911 and speak to an experienced independent uh, police officer from the metropolitan or provincial police forces that will carry out the investigation and lay charges where required. And the civilian court will also play the role that they play in civil society. So it's a major step forward and it shows courage, determination and uh, absolute, you know, a strong will on the part of the defense minister to make sure that the defense department and the military justice system quite understands that she's there, she means business, she will make the hard decision, and we're going to clean up the mess. Yeah, I mean, it's almost, you just shake your head because it's such a common sense thing that it's, you know, you wonder why did they wait so long to do something that was just so straightforward and simple. Having said that, so that means now that all criminal cases of a sexual nature, so that would include historical cases, um, right now in the military and current cases under investigation will now be turned over to these civilian uh, bodies. Um, there are a number of upper ranking generals right now being, um, you know, going through the process. You've got uh, General Danny Fortena comes to mind. Does that mean all of those investigations now go uh, through a separate police investigation? Well, the forte is already before a civilian court, so we don't have to worry about this one. But there is a number of other senior officers who are facing allegation, and the military police in typical fashion is taking a long time before advising uh, the person against whom allegations have been made in the public 
what action, if any, will be taken. So if in any one of those cases, they are criminal assault being leveled against this officer, it's going to go immediately to a civilian court. And probably the investigation will be turned over also to civilian police. So we're into a gray zone at the moment. But certainly from this point onwards, any allegations, whether the you know, the event or the assault took place five years ago, 20 years ago, or last month. Um, as soon as those allegations are being made, they will be made to a civil police and it will be investigated by a civil police force being municipal, provincial or federal. And then whatever charges are laid will be laid in a civilian court. It's a major step. I've been arguing this for the past 15 years. Major step forward. It will increase the level of trust that these victims have into the Canadian justice system. It will send also a powerful signals to those who haven't got the message yet, who don't understand that uh, sexual misconduct and sexual assault in particular is no longer tolerated in no shape or form. And action, robust action will be taken against these people and taken uh, in, you know, in, a, in a short order of time. That message will soon resonate in the mind of these individuals very quickly, and that's a good thing. Yeah, uh, non-criminal cases um, such as like an inappropriate relationship uh, would would still be handled by the military. I think a lot of people wonder, though, uh, Colonel, is how did this um, system where the military investigates the military? How did it even become a thing? Like, how did any government think that that was a, a long-term good solution uh, that could objectively be carried out? Yeah, good question. I'm asked you. I, I'm, I'm happy that you ask it. In 1998, in the wake of the Somalia inquiry, there was a huge overhaul of the National Defense Act at the time. Several organizations were created: the Director of Military Prosecution, a Grievance Board, a, a, the CFNIS, and so on and so forth. And at the same time, I guess there would have been communication made between the Defense Department and, and uh, the Parliamentary Committee, but out of nowhere. A decision was made to give jurisdiction over sexual assault to the military. There was mm. no discussion in parliamentary committees. It was done. The only, the only, no, the only thing that we know as to why this was done was D&D at the time argued that the military could do, could handle those sexual assault trials in a more effective, meaning in a faster fashion than the civilian. Uh, when you want to apply the law, time. And, and speed is not the the principal factor. You want to have justice to be done and justice to be carried out on an equal and equitable level. And this has not been done. But the military overnight then, without any experience, either the military police or the military courts had no prior experience in investigating or prosecuting sexual assault. None. Zero. Overnight, they became charged with that particular jurisdiction, and yeah. you know, and and they muddled through uh, right up until very recently and tried to do the best they can. They don't have the experience, the volume, the expertise, or the independence. And victims said this to Madame Deschamps: they didn't believe that the uh, that the military police was independent enough. They not come across as being independent. Of course, they're not. They're members of the military, they have the military ranks, military training, and victims see them as part of the chain of command, part of the military establishment. Yeah, of course, of course. It, it would all, yeah, it's like, it's like putting the, the fox in charge of the, the hen house, but nonetheless. Right.
Here we are today, and I have a feeling you might get a few more clients uh, and be a lot more busy these days. Colonel, I always appreciate your time. Thank you for giving us some clarity right. on this. Thank you very much. Bye-bye now. That is uh, Colonel Michel Drapeau, who uh, is specific in his practice of military laws. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday at 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.